Welcome to Living the Bible Together. This is Dr. Troy Shaw, pastor of the Liberty Hill Church, internationally headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, located at 4410 Refugee Road. We worship here online Sundays at 11 a.m. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of each month. Our Bible study is on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock p.m. For additional information, log on to livingthebibletogether.org. Join us here weekly as we're living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Thanks for joining me for Bible study. I thought that over the next few weeks, we might look into the book of Ezekiel. In thinking about this book of the Bible, it seems to me to be very appropriate for the times we're living in. First, let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we worship you. We are thankful for the opportunity to join together in the study of your word. We're grateful for all of the wonderful study resources that are available to us so that we can learn more about you and your word for us. Please allow your spirit to be with us as we study. Together in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think that there are three significant reasons to study Ezekiel in these times. The first reason is to help us see our sin more clearly. The prophet Ezekiel was commissioned to be a watchman, sounding the warning for the early waves of exiles in Babylon. The problem was that the people didn't want to hear his warning, mostly because they didn't have an an accurate understanding of themselves and their relationship with God. Ezekiel repeatedly holds up a mirror to Israel so that they can see their idolatry, their pride, their misplaced hopes, their self-righteousness, and their unfaithfulness. He doesn't let them look away or minimize their sins or take refuge in flimsy excuses. In graphic language, he helps Israel see the painful truth of their condition before the Lord. And because they didn't want to listen, because they refused to look into the mirror of God's word, God has Ezekiel act out the message for them. None of us likes to look in the mirror and admit that there's something wrong with us. We'd rather listen to messages of how much God loves us and what great plans he has for us, which is true. And we'd rather look to God's word for practical wisdom and solid help for navigating the challenges of life. And those are certainly available in the book. But if we never see what's wrong with us, we won't take action to address it. And that's one of Ezekiel's goals, to help us see the true nature of our problem so that we will repent and turn to God for the forgiveness and mercy that we need. The second reason I think it's helpful to, uh, to study this book is that it helps us gain perspective on God's plan. Ezekiel prophesied in the decades before and after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That cataclysmic event marks the center of his prophecy and the turning point of the book. With the city overrun and the temple destroyed, God's people wondered what God was doing. They wondered if his promises had failed and if their future was gone. So Ezekiel makes plain that God will judge the nations just as he had judged Israel. The justice of God shows no partiality. But having judged Israel, God would also display his faithfulness. God's spirit would restore Israel. 
For the sake of his own glory, he would make a new covenant with his people that could not be broken, and he would put his own spirit in them. They would live peacefully and safely. This restoration would culminate in an ideal temple in a new land from which God would never again depart. People wonder if God has a plan, and studying Ezekiel's vision should give us both hope and certainty. Some of these visions seem obscure. They seem obscure in their details, but their point is clear. Christians sometimes disagree on the time and the place of their fulfillment, but not the certainty of that fulfillment. God's assuring us that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the new covenant fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God will certainly accomplish what we neither deserve nor can attain on our own. It's easy to lose perspective in the midst of life's challenges and trials. It's easy to be consumed and distracted by disputes over the details and timing of the last days. Ezekiel lifts our eyes and refocuses our vision on the certainty of God's saving work in the gospel. Despite what we see in the world around us or in our own lives, God's plan was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's displayed now in the life of the church and will be consummated in a new Jerusalem in which there will be no temple because according to Revelation 21:22, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the third reason to study Ezekiel is that it helps us find hope in the midst of suffering. One of the burning questions of Ezekiel is where is God? The book opens with God's people in exile, and then God unexpectedly shows up. But what's he doing in Babylon? Why isn't he in the temple in Jerusalem? In dramatic imagery, Ezekiel is shown that God has abandoned the temple, driven away by the sins of Israel. The exile cannot be avoided because God's judgment cannot be averted. This question haunts the first half of the book, and the answer seems self-evident. The Lord has forsaken the land. And yet, almost from the very beginning of the book, God makes clear that in the midst of suffering and judgment, God's people have misunderstood God's heart. God declares, though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. His arrival in Babylon not only marks his judgment on Jerusalem, but anticipates his triumphant judgment over Israel's enemies. His purpose is to put his spirit within his people and to restore them. And this book ends with a final glance at the restored city. When we study Ezekiel, we have an opportunity to remind ourselves that God is where he always is. He's with his people. He's with us in the midst of judgment because that judgment happened at the cross when the son bore our sins. Jesus has fulfilled the promise of Ezekiel 36, 37. When he ascended to the Father, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And even now he makes us alive in the power of the Spirit. We want to know where God is when our world is falling apart. When God's promises seem impossibly far off. When the enemy seems to have the upper hand and it feels as if God doesn't see and doesn't care. Ezekiel knew from bitter experience the reality and pain of those questions. But we don't study Ezekiel because he gives voice to our questions. We study Ezekiel because he gives voice to God's answers. 
Hope is found not in our circumstances, our feelings, or our efforts, but in the confidence that God is with his people. For what Ezekiel prophesied, Jesus Christ fulfilled. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And that's why I think we should study Ezekiel. So I'd like to give you a little background on the book. A lot of uh, dates in here, historical dates. The book is named for its author, Ezekiel, who is nowhere else mentioned in Scripture. His name means strengthened by God, which indeed he was for the prophetic ministry to which God called him. We will see that Ezekiel uses visions, prophecies, parables, signs, and symbols to proclaim and dramatize the message of God to his exiled, exiled people. Ezekiel was 25 when he was taken into captivity and 30 when called into ministry. 30 was the age when priests began their office, so it was a notable year for Ezekiel. His ministry began in 593 B.C. and it extended at least 22 years. He was a contemporary of uh, both Jeremiah, who was 20 years older, and Daniel, who was about the same age. Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest, and because of his priestly background, he was particularly interested in and familiar with temple details, so God used him to write about them. Ezekiel and his wife were among 10,000 Jews taken captive to Babylon in 597 B.C. They lived in Tel Aviv on the bank of the Kabar River, southeast of Babylon. Almost all of Ezekiel's prophecies are in chronological order and are precisely dated. The, the beginning of his ministry is said to be in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. In the 30th year refers to his age when he began to prophesy. The latest stated prophecy in the book was given in the 7 and 20th year in the first month, in the first day of the month. And that 27th year should be dated to Jehoiachin's exile, which terminates Ezekiel's ministry in 571 B.C. at the age of 52. From the historical perspective, Israel's United Kingdom lasted more than 110 years, about 1043 to 931 B.C. It lasted through the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. Then the divided kingdom, Israel on the north and Judah on the south, from 931 to 722-721 B.C. Israel fell to Assyria in 722 B.C., leaving Judah, the surviving kingdom, which fell to Babylon in 605 B.C. In 605, Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, began the conquest of Jerusalem and the deportation of captives, among them Daniel. In December of 598 B.C., he again besieged Jerusalem and on March the following year took possession. This time he took captive Jehoiachin and a group of 10,000, which included Ezekiel. The final destruction of Jerusalem and the conquest of Judah, including the third deportation, came in 586 B.C. King Josiah had instituted reforms in Judah. But tragically, despite his effort, idolatry had so dulled the Judeans that their awakening was only skin deep. The Egyptian army killed Josiah as it crossed Palestine, and the Jews plunged on in sin toward judgment under Jehoahaz, under Jehoiakim, 
under Jehoiachin, and under Zedekiah. Ezekiel and the 10,000 lived in exile in Babylonia, more as colonists than captives, being permitted to farm tracts of land under somewhat favorable conditions. Ezekiel even had his own house. False prophets deceived the exiles with assurances of a speedy return to Judah, but Ezekiel warned that their beloved Jerusalem would be destroyed and their exile prolonged, so there was no hope of immediate return. In 585 BC, an escapee from Jerusalem reached Ezekiel with the first news that the city had fallen about six months earlier. That dashed the false hopes of any immediate deliverance for the exiles. So the remainder of Ezekiel's prophecies related to Israel's future restoration to its homeland and the final blessings of the Messianic kingdom. The theme, Glory of the Lord, is central to Ezekiel, appearing throughout the book. The book includes graphic descriptions of the disobedience of Israel and Judah, despite God's kindness. It shows God's desire for Israel to bear fruit, which he can bless. However, selfish indulgence had left Judah ready for judgment like a torched vine. References are plentiful to Israel's idolatry and its consequences. We will see many scenes that illustrate spiritual principles. Among these are Ezekiel eating a scroll, the faces of four angels representing aspects of creation over which God rules. There's a barbershop scene. There's graffiti on the temple walls reminding readers of what God really wants in his dwelling place. That is holiness and not ugliness. Chief among the theological themes are God's holiness and sovereignty. These are conveyed by frequent contrast of his bright glory against the despicable backdrop of Judah's sins. Closely related is God's purpose of glorious triumph so that all may know that I am the Lord. This divine monogram, God's signature authenticating his acts, is mentioned more than 60 times, usually with the judgment, but also after the promised restoration. Another feature involves God's angels carrying out his program behind the scenes. A further important theme is God's holding each individual accountable for pursuing righteousness. Each individual accountable for pursuing righteousness. Ezekiel also stresses sinfulness in Israel and other nations. He deals with the necessity of God's wrath to deal with sin, God's frustration of man's devices to escape from besieged Jerusalem, and God's grace pledged in the covenant with Abraham, being fully restored, being fulfilled by restoring Abraham's people to the land of the covenant. God promises to, res to preserve a remnant of Israel, of Israelites, through whom he will fulfill his restoration promises. The backgrounds of the books of Daniel and Ezekiel are quite similar. Daniel was taken captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar during the reign of Jehoiakim. At first, Jehoiakim supported Nebuchadnezzar, but he, he changed his allegiance and decided to uh, give his allegiance to Egypt. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and captured it. Jehoiakim had already died in disgrace and been su succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin, feeling that matters were quite hopeless, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and was taken captive to Babylon along with Ezekiel and a total of 10,000. 
Thus, all of Ezekiel's ministry, except for visionary glimpses of life in Jerusalem, took place in Babylon. Since Ezekiel prophesied both before and after the destruction of Jerusalem during Nebuchadnezzar's third campaign, his early prophecies emphasize the impending disaster. His later prophecies stress Israel's future restoration, especially their glorious new temple. So in this book, we see three things to explain that Judah must be judged for disobedience, to encourage the remnant of Judah through prophecies of her glorious future restoration, and to emphasize the preeminence of God's glory and character. The glory of God may well be revealed as the theme of the book because Ezekiel's ministry begins with a vision of God's glory and emphasizes it throughout the book. Upward of 75 times, God expresses his own concerns in the book as for my name's sake or that ye shall know that I am the Lord. All of God's actions, either in judgment or blessing, emanate equally from his holiness and for his glory. So I want to summarize the book of Ezekiel by telling you that the book has a logical arrangement. It contains three sections, each of which addresses a different subject matter. 1 through 24 concern the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 25 through 39 contain a series of oracles addressed to foreign nations, concluding with a section in which the future of Israel is contrasted with that of the foreign nations. The third section, chapters 40 through 48, it presents a plan for rebuilding the temple and reorganizing the restored state of Israel. Ezekiel was one of the younger men taken to Babylon in the first captivity in 597. He served as a kind of religious counselor to the Hebrew exiles who were allowed to live in a colony by themselves near the banks of the Kabar. Scholars generally assume that most of what is contained in Ezekiel was written by the prophet himself. The book opens with an account of the vision that summoned Ezekiel to his prophetic calling. Ezekiel describes his vision as an elaborate and complex image that symbolizes the majesty of Yahweh and proclaims Yahweh's sovereignty over all the nations of the earth. The prophet is so overcome by the vision that he falls on his face. A voice calls out to him saying, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Ezekiel then handed a scroll on which is written words of lament and mourning and woe, told to eat the scroll. When he does so, he finds that it tastes as sweet as honey. So Ezekiel knows that the message he is to proclaim tells of impending disaster, yet it is a task that is given to him that he will enjoy. The prophet, the people who were left in Jerusalem after the first captivity consoled themselves with the idea that they were better off than their brethren who were taken to Babylon. They believed that Yahweh would protect them from any foreign power and that neither the city of Jerusalem nor the Judean kingdom would ever be overthrown. Ezekiel's task was to disillusion them with reference to this hope, to make clear to them that the city would be destroyed and also the reasons why it would be overthrown. To accomplish these tasks, he performed a series of symbolic acts. 
For example, we will see that on a piece of tile, he drew a picture of Jerusalem under siege and placed the tile in a prominent place where it could be seen plainly by all those who walked along the street. He lay on his left side for a period of time each day for 390 days. And then he lay on his right side in a similar manner for 40 days. Ezekiel explained that for each day he lay on his left side, the northern Israel would be in captivity for one year. And for each day he lay on his right side, the southern kingdom, Judah, would spend a year in captivity. He cut his hair, dividing it into three parts, one that symbolized northern, northern Israel, then the Judeans left in Israel, and then those in captivity in Babylon. He rationed his food, carried furniture out of his house, and did various other things to represent the disaster that would soon overtake the city of Jerusalem. According to the prophet, the reason for the captivities that had already occurred, as well as for the one in store for the people in Jerusalem, is the people's defiance of Yahweh's laws. Because Ezekiel believes that Yahweh rules supreme over all the nations of the earth, any violation of Yahweh's commands without appropriate punishment constitutes an infringement upon God's honor. Such violations are serious matters to Ezekiel, evidenced by the fact that his references to punishments are usually followed by the words, Then you will know that I am the Lord. Jerusalem must be destroyed because of its sins. In his numbering of these sins, Ezekiel includes both moral and ceremonial transgressions, but he noticeably places the greater emphasis on matters pertaining to the ceremonial. He condemns the worship of idols that represent foreign deities, and he severely censures people who eat forbidden meat or violate any of the other rules that have to do with the conduct of worship. Coming into direct contact with things that are unclean contaminates Yahweh's sanctuary, which Yahweh will not tolerate. Ezekiel, no less than Jeremiah, sees the significance of the individual in his relationship with Yahweh. Rejecting the ideas that fathers may be punished for the sins of their sons and the sons punished for the sins of their fathers, he boldly states that the soul that sins shall die. The fall of the city of Jerusalem presented something of a problem, especially to those who believed that Yahweh's presence in the most holy place in the temple was a sure guarantee that the place would never be overthrown. They remembered Isaiah's words uttered more than a century before when he declared that Jerusalem was Zion's city and must stand forever. Ezekiel believes that Yahweh's presence is located in the temple more than in any other place. How then could the temple be destroyed as long as Yahweh's presence was in it? According to Ezekiel, Yahweh's presence went up out of the temple and rested on a hill outside. Then the temple fell. In the chapters dealing with foreign nations, Ezekiel has one predominant message. These nations are subject to Yahweh's laws, the same as the Hebrew people. That foreign powers have not recognized Yahweh's sovereignty does not alter their fate in the least. Ultimately, they will be destroyed, which will take place in order that they know that I am the Lord. Although Yahweh is, in Ezekiel's mind, a universal God, this universality does not mean that Yahweh stands in the same relationship to the foreign nations as he does to the people of Israel. In this respect, Ezekiel's views are decidedly nationalistic. 
Yahweh punishes the Israelites in order to teach them a lesson that they have refused to learn in any other way. But in the case of foreign nations, punishment is not meant to teach a lesson that will bring about their conversion. With them, the coming destruction is to be final and does not anticipate any reformation on their part. With reference to the Israelites, something quite different will happen. Yahweh will transform them by putting his own spirit into their hearts. This restoration will include both the people of the northern kingdom and the people of Judah. In the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel proclaims a complete restoration of the whole house of Israel. The Israelites will return to their own land and rebuild the kingdom that was overthrown, and Yahweh will dwell in their midst forever. The final destruction of all foreign nations is described as an event that will take place when the vast armies under the leadership of Gog and Magog attempt to capture the restored city of Jerusalem. At the crucial moment when victory appears near for the invaders, Yahweh will intervene and completely destroy all of their forces. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel contain a description of the restored state as envisioned by the prophet. The temple will be built outside the main part of Jerusalem, constructed in such a manner that will make it possible to keep all those persons and objects that might contaminate the holy place in which Yahweh will dwell, to keep it pure. At this point in the text, Ezekiel introduces a distinction between priests and Levites in order that only qualified people should enter the temple even for the purpose of keeping it clean. The highest official will no longer be the king, but rather the high priest, thus indicating that political affairs shall always be made subordinate to religious considerations. Ezekiel has sometimes been called the father of Judaism. His influence on the future development of Israel's religion was at least for several centuries greater than that of any of the other prophets. Ezekiel's concept of holiness became dominant in the period that followed his people's return from Babylonian exile. For Ezekiel, holiness was a quality present in both things and people. Holy objects would be profaned whenever anything common or unclean was brought into direct contact with them, a belief that led to a sharp distinction between the secular and the holy, and gave new meaning to such things as the observance of dietary laws, payment of tithes, and the observance of the Sabbath. Violation of any of these rules would constitute profaning of that which was holy. Ezekiel's conception of the final triumph of the Israelite people over all of their enemies and the complete destruction of foreign nations contributed much toward the development of the religious doctrines that played such prominent roles in the religion of post-exilic Judaism. The idea that the whole human race is divided into two classes, known as the righteous and the wicked, and that the righteous can be identified as the ones who live in strict conformity with all of Yahweh's laws, while the wicked are those who do not obey these laws, and that, that is derived from Ezekiel's teachings. Although this position was not accepted by all of the post-exilic Jews, nevertheless, this doctrine appealed to a large number of them. Ezekiel's plans for rebuilding the temple and reorganizing the state was carried out to a considerable extent when the exiles returned to their own land. The high priest, rather than a king, assumed the greatest responsibility in political and religious affairs. 
The use of servants and foreign slaves to do menial tasks in the temple was discontinued. Only those people who belonged to the tribe of Levi were permitted to enter the temple for this purpose. In earlier times, the entire tribe was regarded as having been set aside for the priesthood, but now only a select group within this tribe was allowed to officiate in the temple's services. The spirit of Ezekiel's work determined to a very great extent the character of the religious life of the people during the centuries that followed his teachings. His influence is notable in the Code of Laws found in Leviticus, chapter 17 through 26, and in the lengthy and detailed set of laws in the Pentateuch. All right, so that sets the stage for our study over the next few weeks. I love this book of prophecy because to me, it demonstrates how God is always with us. He is not a far off deity, but a God who created us, loves us, Yes, sometimes calls us to account for our sins, forgives us and saves us through the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. I hope you will join me next week to continue our journey through Ezekiel. God bless you. Have a good evening. This has been another broadcast of Living the Bible Together with Dr. Troy Shaw from the Liberty Hill Church, where we worship virtually on Sundays at 11 a.m. For more information or to contribute to this ministry, please visit us online at livingthebibletogether.org. God bless you and have a great week. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. (laughs) 